0: Chapter 13. Reconstructing Civil Government What will it take to reconstruct our society? What revival faith offers us a legitimate hope in long-term dominion? None. How about the political faith of the two major political parties in the United States? Should we join with them? The liberal end of the political spectrum promises a just society, but only with more of your tax dollars, fewer freedoms, mediocrity in nearly everything, and more political control. The conservatives have their own brand of false hopes, believing that justice finds its wisdom in common sense, that natural law is a handy substitute for biblical law, and that progress in a free market society is inevitable. For all of them, politics is the answer. Vote for me and I'll see to it that all will be right with you and the world, goes the political promise. This is the political faith. The Bible calls us to faith, but a faith that takes us to the God who created heaven and earth, to the God who sent his son Jesus Christ to make the restoration of a fallen world a reality. This same faith will be a beacon to the nations, a light to the world that lies in darkness. This is God's purpose for his people, that they might be a city on a hill, not a light for the political faith, but a light that shines bright on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the only hope for the world. Where is the source of the light found? In the Bible. The reconstruction of civil government begins with the Bible. Jesus wants us to return to the standards of God's law so the whole world will marvel and follow. First, to show men everywhere that they are sinners and in need of redemption. Second, to set forth a blueprint for living in a world of contrary opinions. This was Israel's task, Deuteronomy 4, 1-8, that has now fallen upon the church, the new Israel to be a city set on a hill, Matthew 5.14, to give the people who were sitting in darkness a great light, Matthew 4.16, compare Isaiah nine two. So Jesus calls us to restore the broken foundations, not to become revolutionaries for a misguided political faith. This was the vision of our Puritan forefathers, given expression by John Winthrop in his Model of Christian Charity in 1630, aboard the Arabella, as they sailed for New England, and also in numerous charters and documents drafted by men who understood that Jesus indeed is ruler of the nations. Let us make Winthrop's vision of the future our vision. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people. He will command a blessing on us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than we have formerly known. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, and ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies. The Lord will make our names a praise and glory so that men shall say of succeeding plantations, The Lord make it like that of New England, for we must consider that we shall be like a city upon a hill, the eyes of all the people are on us. Transcendence. Presence. God spoke the world into existence. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis one three. The Ten Commandments are called the Ten Words in Deuteronomy 4.13. Scripture is said to be God breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16, International Version. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. Since God is transcendent, his law is high above all creatures. But God's will for mankind is not out of reach. God's Holy Spirit is imminent, present, and so is the Bible. God came to meet with Moses on the mountain, to give him the commandments. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth. Exodus 19:3-5. The rejection of this first principle substitutes the supposed transcendence of the state for the transcendence of God. The state demands obedience by denying God or acting in a neutral way toward him. This is called statism. The state is a substitute deity. It seeks to be close to the people, imminent, by creating a governmental system that controls through burdensome laws, bureaucratic forms, and centralization. God is all-seeing, omniscient, and present everywhere, omnipresent. He knows everything. These are incommunicable attributes of God. He does not share them. No creature possesses them. Because Satan does not possess these attributes of God, he must make up for this lack by strengthening his demonic and human hierarchy, or as C.S. Lewis calls it in the Screw Tape Letters, the Lower archy. Others must see for him, report everything they have seen and remember to him, and carry out his orders. There is always a lot of information lost in the process. Thus, throughout history, those who have relied on bureaucracy have failed in their struggles with those who rely on self-government under a perfect, sovereign God. Authority Hierarchy God delegates sovereignty to men. He does this directly, for all men are created in His image. He also does this through government. Some men become God's representatives in His ordained hierarchies. God establishes plural hierarchies. The state is not synonymous with society. Society is much broader. Associations, churches, schools, families, etc. In effect, we are not the government. The government is simply an agency of force that has the power of the sword. It receives this power from God, but also through lawfully constituted transfers of power from the people. If people refuse to submit, no king can rule. The Tenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution makes a distinction between the state and society. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The state is not the depository of unbridled power. Individuals in their respective callings retain power. This diffuses the potential for tyranny since such a system of government decentralizes power by placing it in the hands of the many. The concluding phrase of the First Amendment indicates that the people are separate from the national government. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The people can petition the government, changing the direction of the nation through all the constitutional means at their disposal. Of course, the vote is a very powerful tool in the hands of self-governed citizens. A question that every human institution faces is this one. Who's in charge here? Someone or some group must lay down the law meaning that someone has the authority to tell others what to do. There must be some sort of system of accountability. The Bible tells us that God establishes kings on their thrones. He elevates leaders, and he pulls them down, Daniel 2:21. He is the ruler of the nations, not men. The civil governments of men merely reflect his power and rule. Man's governments are not creative and autonomous. Auto equals self, namos equals law. For the messianic state, the basis of civil government develops out of the will of man. Essentially, all men do what is right in their own eyes, and those running for political office appeal to the self-willed character of the people by promising them favors from the state in exchange for their votes. In time, however, authority is transferred to a powerful group of men who claim absolute power for themselves, or other men abdicate responsible, decentralized government and thus forfeit jurisdiction. Man's court becomes the final court of appeal. The Constitution, in the words of U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Evolutionist Oliver Wendell Holmes, is what the courts say it is. Man willingly submits to the state. Ethically rebellious men choose a certain kind of hierarchy, a top-down hierarchy. This is Satan's model. God does not need such a bureaucracy, for he is absolutely sovereign. He can deal with men directly. They can pray to him directly. Not so with Satan and his followers. Satan is a creature. He can be only in one place at a time. Thus, those who believe in the messianic state place all their hopes in a top-down hierarchy of command rather than in God's bottom-up hierarchy of appeal. The state, however, has a single characteristic not given to the individual or society at large. That is, the legitimacy of its use of power and force. The state does not bear the sword for nothing, Romans 13.4. While we see the state usurping the power of individuals, families, and churches by the use of its own power, we should not deny the state its power in its biblically designated jurisdictions. The Christian's dominion task is to call the state back to its proper biblical role. This will mean Christian involvement in the seats of power. Ethics, law, dominion. All governments require a reference point. If God is to be pleased by men, the Bible must become the foundation of all their governments, including civil government. This means that biblical law must be made the foundation of all righteous judgment in every government, personal, self-government, ecclesiastical, familial, and civil. There are those who do not want biblical law to rule over them. Even some Christians place the state in a special category where it is obligated to follow something other than that biblical law natural law, conscience, common sense, or the will of the people. Such anti-biblical choices are sure roads to tyranny. Neutral or objective law has brought on some of the greatest holocausts the world has ever seen – the premeditated murder of nearly 20 million unborn babies in the United States since 1973, and 35 to 50 million per year worldwide. Remember, these are state-sanctioned holocausts. These are holocausts based on the will of the people and a natural law ethic. This system of ethics, as it is related to economics, for example, has plunged much of the world into poverty and the ravages of recession and inflation, while socialistic welfare programs are threatening the once prosperous Christian West. What legal system produces tyranny? But the skeptic asks, Can't biblical law sometimes be used in a tyrannical way? The answer clearly is no. It was not Israel that God called tyrannical when its kings obeyed his law. It was those nations around Israel that were tyrannical. When Israel worshipped the false gods of the nations around them, God delivered them into foreign tyranny. Biblical law, when enforced as a comprehensive system, does not allow for the creation of tyranny. No doubt, parts of biblical law can be misused to impose tyranny, but not biblical law as a unit. For instance, the Bible says that a state that taxes men at 10% of their income is tyrannical, 1 Samuel 8. This means all levels of civil government combined are not allowed by God to extract as much as his tithe. How could modern tyrants operate their tyrannical regimes with so little tax money as a mere 10%? Christians today live under tax burdens that are four to five times heavier than the system designed by God as tyrannical, yet they are worried about biblical law being tyrannical. They call biblical freedom tyrannical, but democratically imposed tax tyranny they call freedom. Doesn't biblical law require people to become Christians? The answer to this question is also no. The Bible calls on men everywhere to repent and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that same Bible does not give the state the power, authority, or jurisdiction to force people to become Christians. Christians therefore should not petition the state to impose Christianity upon the citizenry. Christianity is an inside-out religion. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate the heart of a man or woman, dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 No state has the jurisdiction or power to force someone to be a Christian. Still, those biblical laws which directly address the civil magistrate should be enacted into law, protecting the unborn, the orphan, widow, and stranger, maintaining just weights and measures, no fiat paper money, Enforcing judicial laws regarding restitution and capital punishment, protecting the nation's borders, and establishing a tax rate that does not exceed 10% for any citizen. The purpose of biblical civil government is not to create a perfect society, but rather to create legal conditions for the voluntary establishment of a marketplace free of tyranny. This is one of the reasons Paul urges us to pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 1 Timothy 2:1 and 2 What is left if we cannot go to the Bible for our laws? By what other standards should governments be ruled? Will we be ruled by God or men? This is always the choice facing men. As Elijah said on Mount Carmel to the people, Choose this day whom you will serve, Baal or God? As usual, the people answered not a word. 1 Kings 18.21 Until after they saw whose God was more powerful, Elijah's God or the God of the false prophets? God or a man. The NBC television network in 1986 presented a drama about the gripping and courageous story of Raoul Wallenberg and his attempts to save European Jews from their Nazi tormentor, Colonel Adolf Eichmann. Wallenberg's efforts may have made the difference between life and death for nearly 120,000 Hungarian Jews. During the course of the story, when the viewer is confronted by a scene of Jews being loaded into trucks for shipment to a concentration camp, a Jewish teenager turns to a rabbi and confronts him with what he perceives to be an unanswerable question. How can you still believe in God after all of this? The rabbi does not take long to respond, How can you still believe in man? This is our dilemma today. If we do not believe in God for our laws, then man is all that is left such a foundation leads either to anarchy as in Beirut Lebanon or to totalitarianism the Soviet Union listen to Joshua's response and if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord choose for yourselves today who you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served which you were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord Joshua 24:15 judgment Sanctions. Joshua was testifying to his faith in God. He was therefore testifying to his opposition to all rival gods. The test of his faith was his service. Under which God will a person serve? In other words, which God's law will a person obey? Joshua was serving as a witness for God. He would serve God. He testified. God tells his people to be witnesses for him throughout the world, but to what are Christians to witness? The answer is simple. They are to witness to the faithfulness of God's holy word, the Bible. When a Christian presents the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ to someone, he is witnessing for Christ. He presents the testimony of the biblical account of sin and redemption. But what does this account involve? The Christian is to witness to the truth of the whole Bible. He does this when he testifies to the rule of God over his creation, the responsibilities that men have to God and other men, and the law of God as the proper blueprint of such personal and governmental responsibility. What Christians seldom understand is that all of life is essentially a law court. We are undergoing a trial. We even speak of the trials and tribulations of life, the sin of man in the Garden of Eden, was a courtroom drama. Adam and Eve were supposed to judge Satan when he spoke words against God. Instead, they believed Satan and therefore did what he recommended. By doing what God's enemy said to do, they testified publicly against the truth of God's word. Therefore, when God returned, he conducted a trial. He cross-examined the witnesses, Adam and Eve. God then pronounced judgment against the serpent, then Eve, and finally Adam. But there had to be witnesses. Adam and Eve had no choice. They had to testify against God or Satan once the temptation came. Every system of government has to have a court. There has to be a judge in the system who can settle disputes. His word is never absolutely final. Only God's word is absolutely final. But there must be a judge. This is why the Bible sometimes refers to men as God, Psalm 82.6. Men are not divine in the sense of having some mythical spark of divinity within them. Only Jesus Christ was both God and man, and his two natures were without intermixture. But men are judges. They hold an office analogous to God's office as final judge. All law structures are delegated by God. There is no single earthly law court that can command absolute obedience without violating the prohibition against bowing down to any likeness of what is in heaven. That is a final earthly court of appeal that would substitute for God, Exodus 24, Acts 5:33 through 42 God has created a decentralized system of civil government, Exodus 18, 17-27, and this is reflected in our constitutional system of checks and balances. The fact that elections are held every two years speaks well of the decentralized character of civil government in the United States. Rendering Judgment There must be judgment, that is, evaluation of all our works— The biblical pattern is self-government, self-control, family government, ecclesiastical government, and civil government. The Bible is the ethical standard for the individual in self-government, for parents and children in family government, for church members and elders in ecclesiastical, and for representatives and judges in civil government. Our pattern of evaluation is analogous to God's pattern of judgment. The words of Jesus in Matthew 7-1 are best understood in this context. Humanist law sees no analogous judgment. Judgment is autonomous. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, Judges 17:6. In time, anarchy sets in. The people, the once autonomous and free independent governors, turn to the state for definitive judgment, Judges 9, 1 through 21. The state is chosen over God, 1 Samuel 8, 1-8. Where God gave an inscripturated and visible law, the state's law becomes arbitrary, capricious, and hidden, bureaucratic. All competitive governments are dismantled in principle. God's judgment is sure. He judges in history to establish his judgment. It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in he it is who reduces judges to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless isaiah forty twenty two through twenty three There are many who believe it is the state's duty, through its judicial process, to right every wrong. This concept carries human courts beyond the biblical system of justice. While some might desire such a state function, history shows us that it is impossible and dangerous. Only God can right every wrong, and his chosen means was by Christ's atoning sacrifice for those who believe in him and eternal punishment in hell for those who do not turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. The state is not God. It is not given authority or power over eternity, but only the authority, power, and duty in specific kinds of cases to send convicted criminals to their judgment in time. Rulers in the state have neither the omniscience, all-knowing, nor the omnipotent, Potence, all power, much less the perfect righteousness required to right all wrongs. The state therefore must remain within divinely ordained limits of its authority when dealing with criminals. Obviously, certain sins often may escape detection. Homosexuals who practice behind closed doors are out of bounds for the courts, of course, unless other witness their criminal behavior. Such behavior may not be dealt with by courts in history, but will be dealt with by God, either in history, for example, AIDS, or eternity. The law that requires the death penalty for homosexual acts effectually drives the perversion of homosexuality underground, back to the closet, to the dark realm of shameful activity. Inheritance, legitimacy, continuity. Obedience to the law brings with it the future dominion of the faithful. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, Proverbs 13.22, predicting the future is easy if there is a set standard of ethical behavior with listed blessings and curses. There is an extension of kingdom blessings if people are faithful to the stipulations of the covenant. For the rebel who believes in the ultimate state, continuity is based on planning and bureaucratic control of all aspects of society. The past is denied, therefore there are no fixed laws to guarantee a certain type of future. The people trust experts to tell them what the future will be like. Evil men seek to inherit the future by covetedness, theft, and envy. The theft of Naboth's vineyard is a perfect example. 1 Kings 21 Coveting led to the corrupting of justice through the hiring of false witnesses and then the murder of a righteous man. We must substitute the God-ordained family for the pseudo-family of the modern messianic state. We must see continuity not in terms of statism, but in terms of the biblical covenant structure. The almighty state must be cut back to size, the size approved by the Bible. Where to begin? The loss of dominion by Christians did not just happen. A study of our nation's history will show that there was a time when the majority of the people were self-consciously Christian in their outlook. Even those who did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord still looked upon Christianity as the cornerstone of a Christian civilization. Over time, the idea of a Christian civilization waned. What was gained was soon lost, not by a military coup, but simply by the passivity of Christians. Dominion will not return through magic or even a barrage of miracles. We cannot wait on dominion. It will not drop into our laps from heaven. There must be a starting point. Faithfulness is the word. First, we must believe that something can be done. We must cast off the shackles of pessimism and defeat. Second, we must deny that the state is our savior. The state is the god of humanism. While the state has its proper role to play in society, we must be careful not to elevate it to the position of the humanists. The kingdom of God does not advance through the agency of the state. Remember, the state is just one of God's jurisdictional governments. Modern day humanism is dominant in our nation and has set the church of Jesus Christ on the run. We can see the expression of a man-centered philosophy entrenched in the courts, schools, colleges, medical schools, the media, and in Congress. Even the church has been overrun by pagan ideologies. Too often Christians believe that the world is evil and owned by the devil. The world belongs to Jesus, and as fellow heirs with Christ, we share in his possessions. The devil possesses what we fail to possess. One reason for humanism's Dominance is the Christian's preoccupation with retreatism. We have bought the bill of goods humanists have sold us, that Christians have no business preaching and teaching about topics pertaining to this world. Preach about heaven and the return of Jesus Christ, but do not meddle in the areas of economics, law, politics, and education. These are strictly secular matters. As long as churches followed this prescription, Christian individuals, families, and churches were not opposed. An ineffective church is a tolerated church. Transcendence, Presence The state is not God. It therefore cannot save mankind. We must abandon any doctrine of salvation by law, especially status law. Since the state is a limited jurisdiction, we should not view it as God walking on earth, ready, willing, and able to meet all our needs. I am afraid, however, that this is too often the case, even for Christians. One of the ways the state positions itself to a place of power is by using the inherent sinful desires of men and women to get something for nothing. They want their false god to make stones into bread. This is promised politically by plundering one segment of society, using the prosperous minority to gain the votes of the envy-motivated majority. Those seeking political power then buy the votes of the majority with the wealth of the minority. Of course, this is all done in the name of fairness, equality, and justice. In the end, the entire nation suffers. Under such a system, the risk-taking entrepreneurs see no advantage in creating wealth because the benefits are minimal for the amount of risk involved. In time, the envy-motivated have no one to plunder. What does this mean for the Christian? All of us should seek to minimize involvement in state welfare, wealth transfer programs. Many Christians are demanding a tax revolt when they ought to demand a benefits revolt. If you are receiving food stamps or small business loans or school loans, work yourself out of the trap of depending on the state for support. Remember, that's someone else's money. Beware of political solutions to problems. It seems that every time Christians see a problem, they run off to Washington shouting, do something, they would be wise to shout, do nothing. Most of our problems can be dealt with either in the home, church, or school. Civil issues that seem to be national in scope can be taken care of at the local level where greater citizen involvement can take place. Many of our concerns are the result of Washington doing something. Instead of running to Washington to get things done at the local level where there is more accountability, the less we use Washington, the sooner it will shrink in size, power, and influence. Become aware of the political issues. The Bible informs us that the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. First 1 Chronicles 12.32 We have to understand the time so we'll be ready to offer the right solutions. We've been told that we're not able to understand the complex issues of the day. There are experts in Washington who know what to do. In fact, they are so expert that they know how to spend our money better than we do. Of course, they also know what is best for our children's education. More money is taken to fund an educational system steeped in the man-centered religion of humanism. And what do we get for our money? mediocrity, falling SAT, scholastic aptitude test scores, the proliferation of drugs, illiteracy, crime, violence, and teenage pregnancies in epidemic proportions. Then there is the prescribed remedy for all this, more money. We are made to believe that the issues of the day are complex. We are told that putting convicted murderers to death is no solution. I guess locking them up so they can be paroled after seven years to murder again is a better solution. It is quite apparent that capital punishment will stop at least one murderer from ever murdering again. But you better know what you're talking about if you hope to give answers. Being like the sons of Issachar is not easy. Authority, hierarchy. If you take the queen's shilling, you do the queen's bidding. Alternatively, He who pays the piper calls the tune. If men do not want to be under the control of the modern messianic state, they must cut off their dependence on this state. This means that the entire welfare system at every level, federal, state, and local, must be progressively dismantled. Every special interest group must be willing to say, We will get our hands out of your wallets if you get your hands out of our wallets. The Bible says that parents must educate their children in the law of God, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. This means that Christian parents must pull their children out of the public school system. This means that Christians must vote no on all school bond issues. The Bible says that children are to care for aged parents. This means no Christian should become dependent on Social Security checks. The money from these checks should be given away each month to charities. Turning back the money to the Social Security system only leads to an expansion of the federal government. Christians should run for office in order to get power in the various government hierarchies. Then they should vote against every expansion of power and every tax hike and every bond issue. The state must be cut back. This is the battle. The belief that the state is the only important government. As self-governed Christians, we must work to cut back the unbridled power and authority of the state. Dominion in the area of civil government does not mean that we desire escalating power base available to those who seek and hold office. Rather, we should run for elected office to pull on the reins of power to slow the growth of power run wild. But Christians must also recognize that we need a peaceful transfer of power to a new Bible-based system of multiple authorities. They must recognize that God will drive out our enemies little by little over many years. Exodus 23:29 and 30. We are not to become revolutionaries. We are not to impose a top-down tyranny to ram the Bible down people's throats. The goal is to use every means available to educate voters and only then to transform their increasingly biblical outlook into legislation. Mostly it will be legislation abolishing past legislation. Ethics, law, dominion. The first step in overturning the messianic state is to place ourselves under God's law. We must meditate on the law. We must make the 119th psalm our hymn of obedience. The second step is to teach our children the law. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. We must demonstrate to them by our actions that we are self-governed by the law. Third, we must proclaim the law to others. We must abandon the false theology that the New Testament Christians are in no sense obligated to obey God's Old Testament law. We must obey the sacrificial law by baptizing people and eating the Lord's Supper. We obey biblical laws against murder, adultery, and many other capital crimes in the Bible. Fourth, we must elect public officials who say that they will vote for biblical laws. First and foremost, this means voting to prohibit abortion. While few Christians are willing to go this far, the long term goal should be the execution of abortionists and parents who hire them. If we argue that abortion is murder, then we must call for the death penalty. If abortionists are not supposed to be executed, then they are not murderers. And if they are not murderers, why do we want to abolish abortion? In short, Christians must learn to think consistently. With respect to almost everything the modern state does to help people, Christians should vote no such help is the first step to enslavement i'm from the government and i'm here to help you is the mythical creed of modern humanist religion christians should stop believing it judgment sanctions christians must begin to serve on juries they must not vote to convict people of crimes that the bible says are not crimes no matter what the corrupt civil law says they must also convict evildoers Even if modern sociology says that they are merely the victims of their environment, this is what Adam pleaded to. Eve made him do it. Juries must be instructed as under common law and as denied under our current humanist legal theory and practice to look to the justice or injustice of the law as well as to the facts of the case. This is absolutely essential if God's law is to be honored and the jury's verdict is not to be manipulated by judges who want people to be convicted under unjust laws. The jury's declaration of not guilty is final. In the jury room, the jury is sovereign, not the legislature, not the police, and surely not the judge. The jury is the fundamental institutional safeguard of our liberties under the common law, the essence of the heritage of Magna Carta 1215. Nevertheless, judges frequently tell the jury that the jury has no right to decide the law, only the facts. This is a lie, and the judges know it. The U.S. Supreme Court declared that juries can decide the law of the case, SPARF versus U.S. 1895. In some states, anyone who does not believe that the jury has a legal right to decide the law is told to identify himself before the jury is selected, and if he does, he is then excluded by the judge from serving on the jury. This is modern judicial tyranny in action. Because those who tell juries this lie are immoral, the Christian should sit silently if any judge asks people to stand up if they believe that the jury has the right to decide the law as well as the facts. Then he should hang the jury if necessary, if the jury votes to convict the defendant of a bad law. This is the number one check on bad politics today. The jury has the final say. Once in that jury room, the judge has no more authority to decide the outcome of the case than the defense attorney does. In our day, and in most areas of human history, the administration of law is controlled by self-seeking men who desire power. The process of the courts are interfered with by lawyers and judges. For example, lawyers are allowed to exclude from a jury a certain number of people, They often exclude people of specific religious beliefs who might decide for or against a particular defendant. They also exclude people on the basis of sex, race, and suspected income level, and they are not required to say why they are excluding a particular candidate for the jury. Witnesses are then called and testimony secured, but only selected witnesses and testimony are utilized. The jurors are not given access to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There is a war on against the jury system. The jury must be defended in word and deed. Except for a major emergency, do not refuse a call to sit on a jury. Find out who the judges are who are running for office and get behind them. A political race for judge will have vastly more impact on your community than the race for any other political office. The judge has more authority in his courtroom than any single legislator is likely to have. Another very important humanist modification of the judicial system in the United States has been the creation of a new system of law called administrative law. These laws are written by the very bureaucrats who enforce them. The Federal Register publishes federal administrative laws each day, and this adds up to about 53,000 pages of fine print each year. Harvard legal scholar Harold Berman has written that the rapid escalation of administrative law in the West since 1900 threatens the West's whole tradition of law and represents a major threat to liberty. The agencies have also created a new bureaucratic office called the Administrative Law Judge. It has the ring of authority about it. In fact, this officer is is a paid employee of the particular federal agency involved in the dispute with citizens or organizations. This paid hireling of the agency renders his decision concerning the lawfulness of the bureaucrac- bureaucracy's decision. This office should have its name changed. It should be made legal for any citizen to appeal administrative rulings directly to the civil courts without having to take the case first through the time consuming bureaucracy. In effect, government bureaucracies have become legislators, judges, and executive enforcers. This violates the principle of federalism, checks and balances. Only one thing will roll back their power, a drastic reduction in their funding. An increase of agency funding is a form of judgment, a reward for good service. It is easier for politicians to increase spending if voters have forgotten how much government is costing them. Therefore, Gary North recommends two very simple administrative changes in government funding. First, require the taxes for any level of civil government to be due the day before elections. Today, due dates for taxes are deliberately scheduled seven months earlier than voting, April versus November. The second simple administrative change would involve returning to the tax collection system that prevailed in the United States before World War II. No compulsory withholding of anyone's income during the year by the government. Each person must pay his taxes out of his own savings on tax day. He must learn to budget for himself. The imposition of these two simple administrative changes would produce the greatest tax revolt since the American Revolution. Government would shrink overnight. By the way, do you know what the level of taxation of the colonies by the British Parliament was in 1775? About 1% for the 13 colonies as a whole, and under 3% for the most heavily taxed Virginia plantation region. Compare this with your local sales tax alone, or state income tax. Common law says that a person is innocent until proven guilty. This rule should control every government agency, including the Internal Revenue Service. At present, the IRS operates under the Napoleonic Code, guilty until proven innocent. Again, the citizen should be allowed to appeal the injustice directly to the civil courts, without having to pay the disputed tax before the independent court system renders a verdict. Every government agency that brings a case against a citizen or organization should pay all legal expenses of the defendant if he is declared not guilty. This will restrain illegal harassment of innocent people. To be really effective, the agency that brought the suit should pay the defendant's expenses. Juries should automatically make this settlement part of any declaration of not guilty. What is the Christian's immediate responsibility? To pray. Prayer is our call to God to judge us and our society. Pray for the destruction of humanism and humanists. Pray for the President, the U.S. Supreme Court, either for changing their minds or changing the court through death or resignation. U.S. senators from your state, U.S. congressmen in your district, the cabinet state representatives, state governor, and city council members. Also pray for the reduction in civil government in general, for, for the proliferation of Christian schools, for more solid Christian lawyers who know the score, for reformation in our churches, families, the media, the medical profession, the and business. Pray also for our persecuted brothers and sisters in foreign lands. Inheritance legitimacy, continuity. As a symbol of the advent of a Christian civil government, all inheritance taxes should be abolished. All gift taxes should be abolished for the same reason. The state must not tax any person's family inheritance. Because debt longer than seven years is prohibited by the Bible, Deuteronomy 15, Christians must, on principle, always vote against any bond issue that carries a debt repayment schedule longer than the biblical limit of seven years. But all bond issues are long-term debt contracts. This means vote no on all bond issues, no matter how good the purpose of the bonds. We must not rob our children's inheritance. Register to vote. Voting is the way that Christians can affect the nature of the continuity of civil government. Your vote counts. As humanist voters' apathy increases, Christians have a better chance of capturing many political offices. In 1645, one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of England. In 1776, one vote determined that English, not German, would be the American language. In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the Union. In 1923, one vote gave Hitler control of the Nazi party. In 1948, in Texas, Lyndon B. Johnson was elected to the U.S. Senate by 87 votes out of 988,295 votes cast in 6,000 precincts. That figures out to be ninth of a vote per precinct. In 1958, six congressmen were re-elected to the U.S. House of Representatives by less than one vote per precinct. In 1960, John F. Kennedy defeated Richard Nixon by only 113,000 popular votes, one half vote per precinct. In 1980, John East of North Carolina won the U.S. Senate seat by one vote per precinct. The Christian community can make a difference if it will only vote. According to Sacramento, California, political consultant Wayne Johnson, 56% of the evangelicals gave Jimmy Carter their votes in 1976, 56% gave their vote to Ronald Reagan in 1980, and 75-81% to gave their vote to President Reagan in 1984. Go to public meetings on current issues, especially if your representative is holding it. Most politicians hold no clear and consistent ideology. They vote according to the way they feel the winds are blowing. Let them feel the wind and some heat. Go prepared. Get their voting record. Study the issues and choose a spokesman to address the issues. If you don't know who your elected representative is, call the research department of your local public library. Get involved in precinct politics. A precinct is the smallest geographical or electoral unit used during an election. Precincts are a way of dividing voters into manageable groups. The precinct is your neighborhood. Elections are won or lost in the precinct. Few people know the power of the precinct. With a little bit of legwork and some telephone calls, you can take over a precinct. Influence your elected officials. If your representatives never hear from you, then they assume that they're doing a good job. I can guarantee you that other groups are bending the ear of your representatives on a daily basis. Write them letters, preferably not a copy of some other letter. They tend to ignore a flood of mail that looks the same. If you are a leader of some group, then say so. Be friendly and courteous. Do not threaten or accuse. Keep your letter short addressing a single issue. Type your letter if you can. Make sure you know what you're talking about. Speak in specifics, not generalities. Ask for a reply. You will probably get a form reply that does not address your specific questions. Write again, forcing your representative to show his or her colors. When your representative votes, write, send a note of thanks. Address your letter in this fashion. The Honorable, blank, U.S. Senate, Washington, D.C. 20510, Dear Senator, blank, or the Honorable, blank, U.S. House of Representatives, Washington, D.C. 20515, Dear Congressman, blank. If you need to get a pending legislative bill, you'll have to write to the appropriate office. You can obtain information on the status of particular legislation in the House or Senate by calling the Legislative Information Office at 202-225-1772. Copies of pending legislation can be obtained for the Senate by writing Senate Documents Room, Senate Hart Building, Room B-04, Washington, D.C., 20510, phone 202-224-7860. For the House, write House Documents Room, U.S. House of Representatives, Washington, D.C., 20515 Phone 202 Summary It's difficult to swallow that change begins with you and me and something will come out of it if change really does occur. What difference can one person make? What difference does one raindrop make in a flood? What difference does one spark make in a forest fire? What difference did Joseph make in Egypt? What difference did Daniel make in Babylon? God calls on us one by one to conform our lives to the image of his Son. There is no magical formula for change. The standard for righteousness is set forth in scripture. Just think what would happen if Christians around the world would begin to affect their world where they live. There would be a tidal wave of change. Those without Christ would want what we have. Our works would be a testimony to our faith. What would your witness do to your neighborhood, your place of work, even your church? The transformation of our world is dependent on the transformation of the body of Christ. It begins with you. It begins with me.